0: Well, my uncle is an impossibly tough act to follow. (laughs) But I'll, I'll do my best. So could we begin saying together the words of the invocation? Toward the one, the perfection of love, harmony and beauty the only being united with all the illuminated souls who form the embodiment now I think we're all fully immersed in the atmosphere of our convergence, the confluence of these streams, the abundant baraka that cascades down through the generations, through the pulsating source of guidance in our guiding teacher, our inspirer, our consoler, our read Hazret Pir in in Khan. And we are, in these days together, basking in, in the glow of that Source and luxuriating in how it is awakening within us and revealing its blessings in our lives and in our communities and discovering the value of a sense of community that transcends the boundaries of our more narrowly defined circles of work and, and study, the sense of a, a community that um, embraces the fullness of the Sufi message and even beyond that seems to have no definite boundary but spills out to include the whole world of awakening beings. So we are here to to celebrate and to celebrate a major landmark, one hundred years of Sufism in the Western world. This is a a milestone, <coughs> and at such an occasion um, we have the opportunity to to stand back for a moment to step back from patterns and habits, and look at the big picture, to look back over the last hundred, hundred years, and um, to look forward to the next hundred years, and try to get a sense of our direction. Now, um, Pierre Shabda gave me an impossible task this morning when he asked me to review the last hundred years <laughs> and <laughs> forecast the next one hundred. <laughs> So that is not within my power. Um, (laughs) But what I would like to do is to um, take a look toward the future and to look toward the future with reference to our experience in the past. And I don't come before you today with, with answers. I have some ideas, I have some, in some cases, even suggestions. But really what I'd like to um, take this time to do is to raise questions, issues, problematiques, let's say, Um, which might mean stirring up controversy. Um, It means um, asking us, to look at some of the basic dynamics of our history and potentially of our future. And this is a task which um, introduces um, complexity and nuance. And I believe that as a community, as we're growing and maturing, that we have an increasing capacity to hold existential tensions, to hold deep questions, and not feel that we always have to slip back into some kind of easy answer or reductive solution. So I look forward to um, joining you in conversations about these subjects. And um, if I can go through quickly enough and touch upon the major points um, briskly enough, then we may have some, some time just to open open my presentation into a, a dialogue, a conversation, and I hope that there is a chance to do that. And if there isn't within this hour, then maybe in other settings within this retreat or even beyond, we can continue to elaborate this conversation. And it's not really a new conversation. I think these are already subjects that, that uh, many of us have been um, discussing in various ways for some time. So, um, one of the questions has to do with unity and multiplicity. Um, Our message, the message that we bring to the world as it relates to the history of religions, is one of recognition of the essential commonality of all faiths in the divine guidance, and yet we, uh, we validate, we, we, uh, we appreciate the diversity of forms. We celebrate that diversity on the altar of the um, service of the universal worship. So we have an essential commitment to a vision of essential unity, and yet within that unit, unity, space for diversity and multiplicity. So how do we enact that? How do we demonstrate that in our own tradition? And if we look back over the last um, century, I think that we have to conclude that um, this last century has been fraught with difficulty, with um, tensions, with polemics, with schisms, conflicts, and um, the result has been a lot of um, tragedy, a lot of... uh, personal pain, collective pain, um, even violence. And so we're in this paradoxical uh, position of being messengers, uh, uh, proponents of a message of love, harmony, and beauty, which we seek to, to um, evangelize and spread throughout the world. And yet within ourselves, to what extent have we succeeded in in actually embodying it? It's a real Question of conscience, I think, for all of us. So um, our gathering here is, of course, a wonderful sign of um, progress, and uh, one can sense the the um, burgeoning commitment to um, a certain basic mutual recognition uh, based on love and and sympathy and respect. And I think that that needs to. Needs to be retained and, and deepened and 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 fostered, but there's there's another aspect to all of this, which is that um, yes, of course, when one studies religious history, often following a revelation, there's been there has been a, a divergence and various sects arise, but if one studies um, the esoteric traditions. Uh, spiritual lineages of grace, whether in an indigenous context or um, within um, the Buddhist uh, world, or indeed in classical Sufism, there is is a, a way, there is a transmission, a tradition, there's a certain integrity to the flow of that unfoldment And if one compares our own history in the last century to how most Sufi orders historically have behaved over the last centuries, sadly, we don't don't look good by comparison. In other words, traditional esoteric schools have a collective understanding about what it means to carry their work into the future, how a lineage extends itself, and um, when branching does take place, how that branching occurs. It doesn't have to be so hard. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this hard. So there are, there are principles that have to do with the integrity of the process of transmission of a baraka stream. And I think the more that we can collectively Tune into those principles and hold them and create a larger sort of culture of the adab of initiation and the adab of transmission. It has to do with each of the groups no longer seeing itself as answerable only to itself, as a rule unto itself, but part of a larger spiritual culture of the unfoldment of our esoteric work. So I think there's a whole conversation that um, can and must take place about, about lineage, about, about um, transmission, about initiation, about the sense of initiatic belonging, and, and then what it means to participate within a context of belonging in the larger inter-order world of our relationships. So I hope that we can have that conversation. I'm just touching on this point here, and there's much more, I think, that can be said and discussed, and and I'm hopeful that 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 conversation will take place. But I wanted to begin there. Now, another um, important, I think, um, tension, and it can be a creative tension, in our history and in our present work, has to do with the um, balance between tradition, and creativity, or freedom, or change. How do we strike the balance? What is our commitment to the form of the work as Mushid has given it? And where do we feel free to, to elaborate, to evolve, to, to transform the form? This question arises again and again, and um, there are certain arising issues that that um, challenge us. For instance, um, one such issue is the um, role of women, and specifically um, feminine aspects of um, of our tradition. So, um, looking at this gathering, for instance, this weekend. Um, Looking out amongst amongst you amongst us, I have the sense that probably the majority of uh, the participants here are women, mm-hmm. and I think that that's probably true in our wider communities and probably in all of our orders. There's a majority of women. Um, but then when we began and um, and the, pr- the 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 um I was one among um, a coterie of uh, patriarchs who <laughs> were all men at the outset so we have a majority of male speakers and a majority of female audience so that's part of um the the unfolding story of our of our culture and of course um in Moshe's time he was the, he is the founder he was a man And yet, of course, we know how deeply um, he valued the roles of women. And in fact, um, he um, raised to the primary positions in his organization four women, as the four Moshidas. And um, I have the, the precise words in which he says, I see as clear as daylight. Don't want to misquote. I see as clear as daylight that the hour is coming when women will lead humanity to a higher evolution. And um, I don't think that the policies of any of our orders are discriminatory, but there are elements of our um, spiritual culture that draws upon previous um, religious history, prior religious history, and... um, The result is that um, there is a certain, you might say, male bias built into our language. And um, if that is the form in which we have received the teachings, the question of tradition versus change comes up. To what extent is it important to be faithful to the form in which Murshid gave it, um, even when that form might no longer even conform to the contemporary standard of um, equality that is current in our wider culture. So, um, it's a very challenging subject because when we look, for instance, at the, the prayers, um, the prayer, Salat in particular, is a prayer in which a, a number of prophets is invoked. And all of those prophets are male figures. and. Um, If we we take these prayers as as a foundation of our spiritual practice, if we repeat them in congregation frequently and personally as a personal daily practice, and our whole orientation is to a prayer that highlights exclusively male figures, does that mean that we haven't created a sufficiently balanced and inclusive spiritual culture? It's a real question. At the same time, we know that these prayers are something extremely sacred, that Moshe said were not man-made prayers. They came through him, and he he often advised us and and implored even, implored us to um, respect the form of his words. I have another quote right here: "Do not change my word, form, or phrases." unless it is most necessary. (laughs) So, So when is it most necessary? That's the question, yeah. (laughs) And then, well, suppose we do make a change. And I can tell you, within our own order, the Sufi order, um, we have uh, we have agonized over this question, we have discussed it at great length, we have taken into account many points of view, um, we have had s- passionate um, participants in this conversation holding very different points of view, and we've gone through that process and tried to come at some, towards some kind of uh, resolution that might not be a final one, but that is sufficiently capacious as to at least pr- take into account uh, the, the fullness of perspectives and what we have come to is that, um, yes, that um, we should feel um, able to offer alternatives, particularly to those who cannot say these prayers. And there are those I c- again and again, um, particularly women, but not only women, who feel that um, they cannot put themselves through this, that, that, that a certain healing is needed personally and collectively, and, um, and not to make that option available is to close the channel of prayer for this person. And we want prayer to, to be a living, vivid reality for, for those who are called to our path. And Mushid himself says um, a Sufi is not bound by any form. Forms are for his use. Here again we have the masculine pronoun. <laughs> 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 Forms are for his use, not to make him a captive so um, and yet so so we have we 've developed a an alternative form, and that's we 're not putting it forward as the the final answer or the canonical form, because if we introduce uh, additional names, well, who gets left out now? <laughs> Is it the African prophets, the chinese prophets i mean there 's always going to be no no list can ever be totally inclusive, <coughs> so we 've got to recognize that. And then who how do we know which figures are prophets, which are saints, which are masters becomes very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about the um, the reason for the prayer and reflect on Murshid's words, he says that this prayer was given in this way so that um, the believers of the major world religions of the world can stand together in prayer and not miss the name of their founder. so the fact that the religions themselves have tended historically in what you might call the patriarchal age, have tended to um, prioritize male figures, means that when we go to create a universal um, context of religion, we're accumulating patriarchies. And what we then end up with a super patriarchy, a, 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 a long list of male figures that might not be as evident in the context of any one religion, but when you merge them all together, you're more and more conscious of the um, predominance of the male focus. So we have, in the Sufi order, we have um, put forward a an offering of a, of a form that um, invokes um, female figures uh, for each of the religions. But um, in doing so, of course, it raises new new issues, new problems, because then when one goes to say the prayer, all of my life I've been saying the the prayer in the in the original way, it comes naturally, it flows, I'm not thinking about it. What happens now that I'm pausing, shifting, which version am I going to say now? I'm in, in a different consciousness. And um, if I'm deconstructing and rewriting the prayers, I might also begin to look at other things. Why this word instead of another word? Why these um, names of God, which a number of the names of God that we use also have a Kind of patriarchal cast to them, Lord, Master, Messiah. Mm-hmm. And um, at a certain point, what has be, been a, a simple tradition that we accepted on faith and, and um, practiced um, uncritically now becomes a, a point of inquiry, of contention, of deconstruction, of questioning and inquiry. Can we ever have the same relationship with the prayers again, with the practices? It's a really challenging question. When we began to um, offer this alternative, already within our Sufi order, there was new questions began to to emerge. And we can look at everything. Um, The divine names, the 99 names of God, the Arabic uh, words that we recite as wazifas, these are grammatically in the male form. When one opens up this question, it never ends. <laughs> Do we change everything? Do we start from scratch and recreate the whole tradition? Do we accept that there are certain things that are cultural relics and, and, we, and we realize that uh, they're in some sense um, culturally bounded and yet we, we, we use them but try to embed them within a, a larger understanding? These are open questions. I'm not coming to you with, with answers today. But I think that these are questions that we can between the various orders that we can meaningfully um, discuss, and um, sometimes um, simply holding the the challenge is um, is a significant step so um another issue this goes back to um This goes back to the earliest um, years of um, Moshe's life work. Of course, he he came over in 1910 first to America and then to um, England. And um, why did he leave America? Well, um, it's an interesting subject and um, it seems in part to have to do with his... um, Um, discovery of his wife-to-be and her discovery of him. And the fact that that relationship was not, um, a a marriage between them was not even uh, legally possible in many states at that time. And not only that, her her family was... um, Dead against it, and um, was um, pursuing him, and the police were involved. So I mean, just ima- imagine the um, racial and religious prejudices of that time. Um, and he went to England, and um, and um, she bravely cut off all ties and and followed him, and they were pursued, and. Um, they got a, a, a marriage license, and uh, the laws were um, more favorable in in England, and um, they were able to um, secure their um, newly formed family. But um, just imagine what he what he faced, and um, and we know, I mean, t- even today, of course, there are a lot of prejudices, but uh, the intensity of the prejudices of those times were very great and he in the um relig- in the in the um letters of mushid to um mushiedda martin, he speaks about how he was more and more learning to learning the the um culture of the west and in what way to to speak in order not to be soundly rejected <laughs> <laughs> and um now. Part of what happened in this story was um, in the early uh, history of this Sufi work in London, um, Mushid was at the center of two overlapping communities, and one community was made up in large part of um, members of the Theosophical society. and um, that was a time in the history of theosophy when the society was anticipating the advent of the world teacher. And there was a very strong messianic streak and um, uh, Annie Besant, who was the head of the of the um, Theosophical Society, ended up um, 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 concluding that it was Krishnamurti. But there were those um, within the uh, movement who were drawn to Murshid. He, he seemed to embody, he seemed to personify all of their expectations. And um, and they were some of them were conscious that their whole relationship with him and with the order was bound up in their own messianic expectations. So they had a certain self-reflective reflect, awareness about this. Um, and they were essentially they were looking to establish a new world religion, um, and with Moshe as its, as its figurehead. And very often those who were most intent in this project were the ones who were really least attentive to what he was actually saying. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to put him up high up on a, on a pedestal and make him the, um, the center of a, of a cult of messianism and um, weren't really listening very attentively to his actual uh, uh, mystical teaching. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I don't want to put it only in negative terms, if it wasn't for uh, all of the good work of theosophy, I mean, the whole inter-religious, um um concept, the, the, the um, pluralism of theosophy was extremely impressive. And it, it, it was also a, um, a, ref, a reform of the movement of spiritualism, which had its own excesses and and um, so Theosophy was, a, was a, an important um, reform movement and one that, um, well, was so successful in um, calling attention to, you know, what Moshe would later call the unity of religious ideals, that even Mahatma Gandhi rediscovered redisco- the, the Bhagavad Gita through the influence of the Theosophical Society. And also the Theosophical Society was very active in the movement toward home rule in India. So there are a lot of good things, and I think Murshid saw that and appreciated that and had made common cause with the Theosophical movement. But there was this whole, anyway, strong messianic streak and this attempt to create a, a new world religious movement. And the other overlapping community was one, uh, was um, a group of, um, well, um, Indians, Muslims, um, the father of Idris Shah was one. Saka Ali Shah and um, um, Yusuf Ali, the translator of the Quran presided over the inauguration of the Sufi order in London. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know if you know that. Um, Among the list of uh, forthcoming publications, if you look at the early um, brochures and things, was a uh, translation of the Muwatta, which is a uh, classic of Islamic jurisprudence that was going to be published by the Sufi order at that time. Uh, at the Kanka they hosted um, the Eid prayers every year, the um, religious service of the annual Islamic uh, festival. Um, Murshid was part of the formation of a group um, called the Anjumani Islam, which had as its purpose the, um, the spreading of... Um, uh, reliable information about um, Islamic culture at a time when there was so much prejudice. And um, Mushid wrote, well, he he taught, uh, as we know, taught the Islamic prayers and many Islamic practices to early marids, including Mushid Arabia. He also wrote a biography of the Prophet Muhammad, <laughs> um, a full monograph, a spiritual biography of the Prophet Muhammad, that was never published. It was um, shelved, and that um, that um, suppression, I think, for want of a better word, is part of our story. It's part of the, the story of our order that we have haven't really come to terms with. Part of our story is the messianic heritage of Theosophy. Another part is Murshid's own cultural and religious. Um, um, heritage and his own um, practice and uh, and um, strong uh, personal um, Islamic experience, which comes out if you read his Urdu works, his uh, poetry, his strong devotionalism taught mm-hmm. the Prophet Muhammad is very evident. So this is part of our heritage that we've always um, it's always exist. These two elements have existed in uneasy mix. There was the the messianic. Um, interreligious, new religious movement, and then there is the extension of um, Indo-Islamic um, Sufi culture, and these exist in a kind of tumultuous, sometimes um, volatile mix. And out of that, there's great, I think, fertility and possibility and dynamism. But there are also inherent sort of contradictions and 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 challenges that we haven't always come to terms with. And that was easier at, a ta- at an earlier time, um, when, when the Sufi order, Sufi movement, was first um, founded. It was the only thing of its kind. It could be called the Sufi order, the Sufi movement, because there was nothing else. Now, especially in the last couple of decades, there are many, many orders in the Western world. And more and more people are uh, becoming acquainted with Sufism through other channels, and Islamic culture through other channels mass migration in fact the contact with the Islamic world has become front and center now in public discourse the the last two wars in uh, the current wars still continuing wars in in Afghanistan and and in Iraq the terrorist attack of 9/11 our whole public attention is riveted by what we see as the clash of civilizations or the war on terror and um, so it's it's problematic for us just to um, claim um, that uh, we have no relationship with Islam that Sufism has always existed that it's totally universal well we we recite um, Islamic names. We recite the names of God in Arabic. We have, a, we have strong cultural um, ties with Islamic civilization. And um, we need, I think, a more sophisticated um, message when it comes to answering questions of this kind, because more and more our self-identification is seen in the larger public sphere as slightly absurd. Sufis that um, are unable or un- unwilling to talk about the Islamic dimension of their own heritage, and it, I don't think that that means that um, that we have to um, compromise on our dedication to a pluralistic, interreligious um, paradigm of spirituality. And Murshid himself was very firm on that point. In fact, I wanted to share something with you. Um, I spoke of those two overlapping communities. And at a certain point, those two communities, mushid tried strenuously to keep those communities together, but they couldn't stay together. They they um, fell apart. And that falling apart was actually a crisis in the history of our Sufi work. And it was part of what precipitated the move from when the kanka was lost, the move from uh, London, where Murshid and his family went and um, lived in France and basically started over from scratch. It had to do with these tensions. And um, so the pull, Mushid was being pulled in two different ways. One one part of his following wanted nothing to do with anything that sounded culturally or religiously Islamic. And another part, there were those among his um, Muslim friends that um, advised him that it was impossible for him to initiate uh, Morides, who, who were not pr- willing or able to um, to adopt Islam, <laughs> and he d- he didn't he was trying to keep everyone together, but it, the the two points of view proved incompatible at a certain point. But he was as firm as he was in in um, maintaining the, the dignity of his Islamic heritage. I mean, there was a time when he was provoked to even and so when when uh, a very insulting comment was made he answered i am a muslim in my very blood mm-hmm. but he was v- as firm in his commitment to a, an inclusive and universal vision and this was true when um a, me- a member of the order who entered into it probably without uh, in in a sort of um Ill-considered fashion ended up somehow in the Sufi order, but he was one of the, he was a, an early um, um, convert to Islam and and a translator of the Quran, a very prominent um, person actually. And um, he, when he saw that um, this the order included people of various religious um, affiliations, he protested and he wrote a letter. And I want to read his letter and read Murshid's answer so this is the letter i have come across a great many sufis in the east and have read a great deal of sufi literature from early times and i have never yet heard of any sufism which was not definitely islamic nor any sufi who did not accept the quran as the final revelation This is why I was led to believe that in joining a Sufi community, I was associating with Muslims of my own religious faith. Is the Sufi order really Muslim, or to put it in the straightest terms, Mohammedan? So that's a question probably some of us have heard before. How would you answer? Well, let's hear how Mushed answered. To a Sufi, revelation is the inherent property of every soul which has worked through all stages of the world's evolution and developed in every state of individual evolution. It is, to a Sufi, an unceasing flow of the divine stream which has neither beginning nor end. Our order is composed of truth seeking people of different faiths and beliefs, who are not in any way obliged to give up the faith or belief they, ha- they may have, or to accept a certain faith or belief, nor are nor are they, if they have none, compelled to adopt one. As long as all tread in harmony in the path of love and light, no member of the Order is concerned to inquire into the faith of any other. It is not intended that all members of the Order should label themselves followers of a certain faith. Members of the Order should keep whatever faith or belief they have. It is not even required of them that they should call themselves Sufi. With regard to teaching, for a certain way, they are of course guided by the Mushid. But after that is passed, they each have their own path and are master of their path. So I think we have our directions clearly from Mushid that we need to be need to be inclusive. There's no doubt about that. And in fact, if we study, if one studies the history of the of the Chishti order in which he received his initiation, um, that policy had already been articulated um, about three cent- centuries earlier by Shah Kalimala Jahanabadi, who made it very clear that initiation of Hindus was perfectly p- permissible. Um, so... Well, we're finding now um, within the Islamic world itself there are tr- tremendous upheavals and um, deep conversations about the 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 um, the um, the future, and um, the the confrontation is of between Islam and the West has a long history going back even before the Crusades, but certainly the Crusades were a flashpoint. And also the the imperial period over the last um, two or three hundred years has been a time when um, Islamic civilization, which at one point was at the pinnacle of scientific learning, philosophical um, uh, richness, um, it was the, the synthesis of multiple civilizations, Greek, Indian, Persianate, African, um, that this um, this um, tremendously vital culture um, due to internal um, pressures and um, also especially due to um, the um, overwhelming force of modernity rising out of the west resulting in industrialization. Um, which uh, projected the power of Europe across the globe, resulting in imperialism and and um, and um, the the um, the introduction of um, new um, technologies and discourses of of knowledge and power meant that the whole um, primacy of Islamic civilization was overturned and um, in our global age, um, th- these, this um, network of, of communities that covers a vast um, part of the globe is reasserting its voice and seeking its, its role in the emerging planetary culture. And within Islam, there are multiple um, directions and, and perspectives on the, the tenor of that, that voice. Uh, ranging from the most um, vitriolic and and fundamentalist um, uh, of um, ideologies to um, very refined and um, sophisticated um, pluralistic um, visions of uh, nascent um, Islamic spirituality that um, can... um, address some of the excesses of um, of our capitalist um, consumer consumeristic um, uh, progress driven society so there's an important conversation to be had at the global level and it seems to me that our sufi heritage poises us places us naturally within this conversation we have this strong uh, um, islamic heritage and yet we're deeply attuned to um, Western history and values, and the significance of modernity, Mushet was um, alive to the, the possibilities that were um, ev- evolving in his time, and I think was a, a, a profound visionary, precisely at this point of intersection between tradition and modernity, East and West, and these fissures, these these um, these. Um, Points of intersection uh, can be points of conflict or they can be the points of fertility through which a new, newly integrated uh, visionary uh, planetary culture can, uh, can grow out and flourish. So uh, I feel that we have a significant part to play if we, if we would overcome our defensiveness about our relationship with Islam and um, take a more proactive approach. And already I'm seeing more and more, um, especially among young people, young um, Muslims, whether um, second or first um, generation immigrants, um, but also young Muslims in other countries that um, are looking for something that they see that Murshid's message offers them. And they don't don't necessarily want to leave their religious heritage, but they want to embrace this um, ecumenical, uh, mystical vision and if we if we're projecting consciously or unconsciously, subtly or overtly a certain um, distrust of Islam and Muslims, that is going to keep them away. And when we pr- prove ourselves accommodating and respectful, they are going to feel welcomed, and more and more, I've found that what our respect for islam enables them to grow into a greater respect for and capacity to hold universalism. Mm-hmm. So many key issues, and I've got to move briskly out. Oh, I'm already... Well, I, there are two, major, two other major points I really wanted to touch upon. One has to do with um, what I call the media and the message. You know that famous um, Mm -hmm. saying of uh, Marshall McLuhan, the media is the message. And um, we're living in a time when the media is is, um, completely transformed, just the last um, decade even, the whole information technology totally accelerating, changing everything. Young people, um, high school age, um, young people um, text more than they Mm -hmm. speak. Um, we've had a, a glimpse of Piero Moser today, just now, thanks to Skype. I mean, there's so many um, uh, interesting new possibilities, um, conversations hap- happening all over the internet, um, people getting in touch with each other in ways that were never possible before, and um, a lot of advantages in terms of the emergence of a, a, a more coherent planetary conversation about the destiny of humanity. A lot of really good things happening. Also, <laughs> there's some some challenges, some some downsides or problematics associated with these things. Um, and you know, if all of these young people are, are texting away all of the time, are they really, you know, looking around, looking to the person right next to one? Um, are, do we have our feet on the ground? Are we breathing with awareness? Are we getting turning into the machines that we use? And um, it also has to do with our um, holding of a lineage that has been, well, originally, Mushid's teachings were given orally to a group that were immediately around him. And he, he, it was always said that he, he spoke to people and answered their questions because in the space he could intuit if, uh, th- them. And he, he, he spoke as if to each person and, and was connected with them at a level beyond mere discourse, it was an interactive resonance. And then, of course, Moshe's teachings were published, but then they were at least preserved and and read out in a in a circle that that began with the invocation, a sacred context and and still breathing together and sharing a, a spiritual space. But then more and more the books are more widely published uh, disseminated. and then now we're in the in the internet age and all of it is online. Um, do we still receive the teachings heart to heart in little circles on the breath? Do we read them in books? Do we surf the web and pick up things here and there? Do we read Morsh- How do we read Morshid? Now we have something called HIK Works. I don't know if all of you are familiar with that, which is electronic version, which is ser- searchable. For some of us, that's how we read it these days. We have a keyword. We want to know what does Mushet say about this. We plug in the keyword wherever it pops up. We read those few sentences, patch it all together, and we have an understanding of Mushet's point of view on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> how does that affect our relationship to how, how do these technologies affect the tr- transmission of the message? How do, how is information passed on and assimilated? And what about the whole ac- element of, of confidentiality of teachings and practices? What does it mean that the papers at various times have been posted in their entirety or in various degrees on the internet? What, do we have a certain commitment to maintaining the confidentiality of these progressive teachings according to level of initiation, or in a different time where everything should just be scattered out? We know that Mushit has made some specific sub uh, comments on this subject Um, and uh, we live in an age where secrecy is um, considered scandalous transparency is our highest value and so we're struggling to understand what if, if if there is something significant in in secrecy and confidentiality we need to understand what it is and how in this information age do we continue to preserve it it's a whole conversation that i think we need to have but why not, why not uh, go till 10.50 and then have 10 minutes for questions? Um, it is uh, 9.50 now. No, we, yes. have, uh, we have five, five. minutes, In the, uh, according to uh, and the, then official, the so. official clock. And then <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we have a long time for our groups. We had an, an hour scheduled. So why don't we have less time for our groups? And yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, those groups are also a time when we can discuss these things, but... Which is what is the intention, but... So what... How, how long sh- would you like me to go? Uh, till 11. Uh, okay. Or, you, you know, maybe... Uh, I think you wanted to leave some time for a dialogue with questions. Is that right? Uh, I have one more major point, and then we'll see. If we want to have a little bit of discussion here, we can do that otherwise. 11. okay. Is everyone okay with that? Yeah. yeah okay. At least. 11. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I think it might be interesting go into our groups and have 10 minutes of discussion with Zia after our groups, after we've discussed it amongst ourselves, okay. yeah, that, 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 to come back and listen, uh, and then we Let's just go it now. I defer to, to my host. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, carry on. All right. Well, the, the last point um, has to do with we're talking about um, the coming century. So what, what can we anticipate in the coming century? And um, we, that, um, that raises some, some really serious, challenging issues. If we look at um, the direction of our industrial um, society, we can see that we're at a turning point. Um, As we speak right now, um, an oil slick, um, apparently 600 miles in diameter, is spreading out over the um, Gulf of Mexico and washing up on the shores of Louisiana. Um, Oil is... um, Oil has been the basis of the... Um, culture that we have generated in the West and which has um, spread out all across the world over the last um, couple of hundred years. And um, our sense of progress, um, economic development, the burgeoning of technologies, the whole arc of recent um, history has been fueled by oil. It's all the byproduct of oil. And um, we're reaching the, the peak of productivity peak oil, and um, that that it has been a, a, a steep grade of um, increasing availability of oil and this this cheap um, energy has produced has produced miracles over the last um, couple of year, uh, hundred of years I mean th- that's why history seems to be accelerating the the what what human beings can um, accomplish physically by brawn is uh, quite limited, but what 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 can be done with um, a a fuel as um, potent as oil is tremendous. And so we've created, we've we've in fact um, overtaken the whole earth and um, mastered nature. And um, and now we've reached the, the peak of the availability of, of oil, and it's going to decline uh, markedly, and f- uh, fuel costs will go up tremendously. Meanwhile, there are other technologies that are being researched. But so far, there doesn't seem to be any, um, any, uh, any solution that can in, in, to any um, degree match the energy output that we have depended upon for the last um, decades. And um, it means everything's going to change. And as that the, the grade of increase was, was, was precipitous, so will be the um, grade of the descent. Now it's just as well, of course. I mean we all know that it's just as well that we don't carry on this addiction to oil because what we've just suddenly discovered in the last couple of decades, is the consequence of burning all of this oil and coal um, the greenhouse effect, the accumulation of um, carbon um, triggering climate change, and that um, climate change is um, more um, serious than has, has been suspected that it's it's not something to worry about in the future. It's something already happening right now. The the polar ice caps are melting away before our eyes. Uh, Within the coming decades, there will be no um, ice. Uh, And the effect of that, of course, is that the albedo effect, the reflectivity of the Earth's surface, uh, which reflects back the sun, is dramatically decreased, which means the heating Continues to intensify. It's not just warming; it's heating, and all kind of um, when when you get into that um, 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 chaos, when when when, you, when when the the equilibrium of Earth's living living systems has been violated, anything can happen. The, the one um, change triggers another, and they begin to cascade. And um, what we see is the physiology of the planet, the planet itself, Gaia, is one being, one organism that has a physiology in the way that we all have physiologies. And when those living systems uh, are disrupted and degraded, then that whole living being, the whole health, begins to erode and and come apart. And that's what what, what we're seeing and and what we'll be seeing more and more. And... um, so to be bearers of a spiritual message of, of unity at such a time, doesn't it compel us to um, deeply um, consider whether our unity extends beyond, w- w- what are the boundaries of that unity? Does that, does that unity encompass the whole of the earth? Murshid, in, as, in all, as in all ways, Murshid was visionary in this regard, when he said, if the planet on which we live had no intelligence, it could not have intelligent beings on it. That's Gaia. (laughs) So there is an intelligence in the whole um, organization of the biosphere, and we've totally disregarded that intelligence. Now, I don't think that we should wring our hands with guilt and shame, because we didn't know what we were doing. We've just been uh, hu- humanity, we, 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 we seek uh, fulfillment and satisfaction, and we, we, we seek to enjoy life and to um, make discoveries. And, and um, it's only very suddenly that we've, we've discovered this hugeness of the impact of the, the path that we have taken. And so there's no point um, uh, shaming ourselves, and yet we've got to take in this new information. But it's, not, it's, so, it's so sudden, it's hard to take it in so quickly, the sudden realization that the, world, the, the earth will never be the same, or at least not for billions and billions of years, that we've irrevocably changed it. And now we've got to live with those changes, and we've got to seek to decrease the damage that we do and adapt to a new earth. So these are huge, huge questions for us, and they go, I think, right to the heart of our conscience and to of our, our spirituality. How does our, does our spirituality have anything to say about this? And if it doesn't, is it really, can we, can we make any claim to be part of uh, the message of our time? The message of our time would have to attend uh, profoundly to this crisis. And I think there are elements of Murshid's teaching that orient us in this direction, but there's much more that we can do to elaborate those aspects and more fully embody them and live them. For me, it's very significant that two practices, in a certain place, Mushid said, two practices are very primary for all Murids in in this order. One is prayer, and the other is the elemental purification breaths. And if one studies the esoteric practices that Mushid gave, almost all of them are, can be found in the classical manuals of the Chishtiya. All of the wazifas, all of the qasab and shagal and amal and zikr, and all of the practices are basically found in the classical tradition, but not the elemental purification press. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the one practice that was his own unique contribution. I find that very significant. It seems to anticipate the need to recover our direct participation in the life of the earth, to make ourselves Gaian humans. When each morning, when we get up, to attune to the elements, to feel the elements within ourselves, to feel the earth within ourselves, no longer to feel ourselves as occupants of the earth, or residents on planet earth, but as the earth itself experiencing herself through us, and if we live in that way, in this sensuous encounter with the elements, with the sky and the trees and the rivers and the earth, then more and more we'll, be, we'll appreciate what is what is earthly, what is natural, what, what comes of the elements. And we'll feel less, I think, compelled to um, indulge in um, artificial excesses that alienate us from that sense of an immediate connection with the earth. And it's from that orientation, from that spiritual groundedness in the earth, that we are well positioned to begin to make the kind of changes in our lifestyle that will allow us to participate meaningfully in the transformation of our time, which I think will involve uh, big changes in, in, in transportation and in, in some of the basic rudiments of life. And, of course, it can't get any more basic than than our sustenance, than our nourishment. And um, there needs to be a move away from the monocultures of industrial agriculture mm-hmm. and a move back toward local community, local um, sufficiency. And um, also, um, w- well, we can see that, um, that uh, industrial agriculture and specifically um, livestock has been a huge c- uh, contribution to um, emissions in fact, um, by some estimates, half of all uh, carbon emissions can be traced to the livestock industry so the um, the practice that Murshid uh, called our attention to of vegetarianism in the gathas is something for us to um, to uh, return our attention to with with seriousness if not a a total vegetarianism then a a, a, a muhasabah, a deep examination of the sources of what we eat, where it came from, what are the impacts of the production of those foods. Because the way that we eat is sort of the basic um, b- basic uh, expression of our relationship with between self and other. What we consume has to do with the interface between person and planet. So... Um, we need to we need to um, begin to make the shift, and it means moving away from big structures toward sustainable local structures. We've already seen with the with the collapse of the um, of the economy that um, we cannot afford to have corporations that are too big to fail because they will fail, <laughs> and um, and uh, we can't afford. Uh, energy utilities that are too big to fail. We can't afford agriculture that's too big to fail. We need to, small is beautiful. And Mushed um, prophesied this when he spoke about the end of the world. The conveniences and comforts of humanity in general will be linked up by one mechanism, which will produce comforts and conveniences beyond human imagination. But the smallest mistake will bring the whole mechanism to certain collapse. In this way, the end of the world will be brought about. So on that apocalyptic <laughs> note. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we know that every end means a big, a new Let me not end on the note of pessimism. If we do, if if humanity does not survive this um, crisis, and of course many species will go down with us, but there are little microbes down deep, and after billions and billions of years, they will repopulate the planet. Life itself is not at stake. Life will continue, if not this world, innumerable worlds. And yet here we are. This is our chance. This is our moment. Do we want that same cycle to repeat itself again and again the cycle of a planet over long eons elaborating itself discovering itself p- producing a flourishing um nervous system and and uh, um unity of being that 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 is the green earth that we have known and reach this moment and then fall back into into um inertia because we haven't made this step we haven't taken this next initiation into the future. That is the the moment before us, and and it's a wonderful opportunity, and I believe our Sufi communities can be a, a part of this opportunity. Thank you.